Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Strength Ratio 30. Podcast. 30. I have just said before the show, I always get the number wrong. And Kyle said 30 and I just said 31. Welcome to episode 30 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm Zach Greenwald, joined with Kyle Kochenko. And our guest today uh, is a part of Renaissance Periodization. Really, we've just kind of looked at the RP roster and just tried to recruit as many of them as possible to come on the show. Of course, they are all uh, very well-educated and knowledgeable. Uh, And today, we're very fortunate to present to you Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro. And uh, Dr. Fundaro, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Uh, So... Dr. Fundaro, or and I'll just or Gab, Gabrielle or Dr. Fundaro, which which would you prefer? I, I should have asked you. <laughs> Gabrielle is fine. That's totally fine. I reserve the the doctor title for uh, students and things where I have to, you know, look um, important. <laughs> awesome. So, um, Gabrielle, you uh, have researched a topic uh, that we believe is quite a hot topic now in that the research around this topic is very novel. Uh, And I think with any novel topic, there will uh, will be certainly some confusion as for what is and is not scientifically sound. Uh, So we're going to be talking today about the gut biome, and I'd love for you to give an introduction as for what the gut biome is and how you got into studying it in the first place or what intrigued you about it. Absolutely. Um, I actually, I'll answer those in the opposite order in which you asked them um, because it makes a little bit more sense that way. Uh, So for my doctoral studies, I studied in a lab that was focused on skeletal muscle metabolism, um, specifically under the umbrella of uh, the dysregulation, the metabolic dysregulation that occurs with high fat feeding and obesity. Um, So what we find is that if we feed a person a high fat hypercaloric diet, that means we basically give them too many calories and they're high in fat. And I should add the caveat to that is also um, that they're high in refined sugars. So something like a a standard American diet or a westernized diet, uh, that they're skeletal muscle exhibits what we call insulin resistance. So it basically doesn't respond to insulin, which is um, basically what's helping to transport glucose or sugar into the skeletal muscle so that it can use it for energy. And um, most people are familiar with the term pre-diabetes or insulin resistance. So it's kind of uh, just another way of saying pre-diabetes. So that can eventually lead to type two diabetes. Um, that skeletal muscle also fails to respond to fatty acids very well. So you end up with skeletal muscle that is not responding to insulin. It's not able to take up glucose as readily. And also it's not able to oxidize fatty acids. And that means that those fatty acids can then be stored as fats in the skeletal muscle. And that exacerbates the whole cycle. And so um, that was the, the, the focus of that lab. And so we would take these mice, I primarily used mouse models um, of obesity in a high fat diet. We would put them on a diet that was about 
Um, 60% fat, about half of those were from saturated fats, and feed them ad libitum until they became obese. And that didn't take very long because mice, when you feed them a high fat diet, will eat to excess. Uh, once they became obese, we would do something called an LPS challenge. LPS is short for lipopolysaccharide, and that is a toxin that's released from specific gut bacteria. The mice who were obese and who had been fed a high-fat diet seemed to have a worsened inflammatory response to the lipopolysaccharide versus the mice who were fed a control diet and who remained lean. But in literature, we find that even in humans who are obese and or uh, have type 2 diabetes, usually those things will, will go hand in hand, that they have higher circulating levels of lipopolysaccharides. So they don't, it's not something that you have to be injected with. It's something that can actually be circulating in your bloodstream. So my question was, you know, before I knew that this was coming from the gut, when I knew we were just injecting mice with lipopolysaccharide, I wanted to know why did we pick lipopolysaccharide to inject these mice with? And then I was told, well, this is a, you know, a, a circulating what we call an endotoxin that comes from the gut and it initiates an inflammatory response. It does that by binding to a, a specific receptor called toll-like receptor 4. It's part of our innate immune system. So that means that this is a part of our immune system that we're born with. Um, and it doesn't have to be trained, so to speak, like the adaptive immune system. So um, if, you, if, if that receptor is bound by LPS, it's going to mount an immune response. And... Uh, at that point, I thought, well, this is interesting to see, you know, that, that this LPS is causing this effect in skeletal muscle, but isn't kind of important to get to the source and look at the root cause of how is the LPS actually getting out of the gut and into the bloodstream? Because things aren't really supposed to um, freely pass through that, that barrier. We have what we call the, an intestinal barrier. So the intestinal cells... Um, are woven together, ideally very tightly, um, by specific proteins. And um, long story short, it's already a long story, but to make it a little bit shorter, um, I asked my advisor if I could actually look into the, the gut more because I was really interested in seeing, you know, what, what is it about a high-fat diet that causes us to have greater levels of circulating lipopolysaccharide because it's that LPS and it's that inflammatory response that actually seems to um, all, almost have a, a causal or a very correlational relationship with insulin resistance. Um, so the gut microbiome, um, to answer your second question, that refers to all of that bacteria that colonize your um, digestive tract. So what you'll find in different areas, in, uh, and I specifically looked in the, the intestines, so um, small and large intestine, you have proximal or uh, proximal, medial, and distal sections of the small and large intestine. And when we say proximal, that means close to, it means closer to the stomach, and distal is uh, farther away from the stomach or closer, closer to the rectum. Um, the small intestine is the primary site for nutrient absorption, uh, nutrients from, from foods that we are consuming. 
Um, and the closer we are to the stomach, the more acidic that environment is. When we move to the large intestine, it's much less acidic there. And that's where we see that we don't really have quite as much nutrient absorption, but there's a lot of bacterial um, activity and bacterial diversity there. So the more acidic the environment, the less bacterial diversity we have, because bacteria are kind of picky in terms of the pH and um, the amount of oxygen available and the type of nutrients that are available. So that's why our diet and our exercise habits can have such a profound influence on the profile of the bacteria in our gut. And in turn, the profile of bacteria in our gut do seem to predispose us to um, obesity, they may account for differences in exercise performance, and there is also a link to um, the limbic system, so our reward pathway, our eating behaviors. I mean, really, there's not an area of human physiology that I can think of that's not impacted by the gut microbiome. So I, I find, and one quick question that I, I have, because I think when we hear the gut biome, uh, especially if you don't have an understanding of perhaps some of the digestive anatomy, mm -hmm. is this entire digestive tract including the stomach, or is this uh, just referring to both the small and large intestine? Well, you actually have different biomes. You have an oral biome, you have a skin biome. There's certainly bacteria that are present in the stomach. Um, and even in the vaginal canal, you have a skin biome. So there are different um, profiles of bacteria really all over the body, even in your belly button. You have a different biome in your belly button. It's so funny because, um, and hopefully not to sidetrack this too much, but there are so many questions about this that it becomes, at least when you hear about this, you you think of it as this singular place like deep in the labyrinth of your digestive system. <laughs> there's this, there's this movie that came out not long ago where it's called, uh, I think it's called the annihilation and people have to travel to the center of this like bacteria infested, uh, biome. Uh, and it's like threatening to take over the world. And I'm like, this is as, uh, I think seemingly as abstract as people imagine. Yeah. Uh, the gut biome just because people don't really know what's inside of it they don't know where it is they don't know what to find or what all is connected oh yeah um, but to, to kind of uh take a step back uh we it sounds uh as though through uh research done on animal populations alone we have uh strong evidence to support uh the influence on um uh skeletal considerations or, or, or skeletal mechanics, so to speak. Has this been shown in, in human populations as well, or is it inference made from animal populations? Not to say that that's not um, super significant, uh, but just to um, be clear, at least for my own self, where we're at in terms of the stage of research. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so... When we look at um, you know, cell culture models or rodent models, it's great for understanding sort of the mechanistic side of things. Um, but there are actually, there are, there are a lot of studies that, in humans that have supported what we've seen in rodent studies. 
um, maybe not quite as conclusively and with as, as something, you know, approaching causality. One of the really most, one of the most formative, I think, and groundbreaking studies was done in a rodent model. And they took mice that were um, transgenic. That means that they, their genes were modified to make them prone to obesity. They took the gut micro, they took the gut bacteria from these obese mice and transplanted it into mice that had no um, gut bacteria. And the mice that were transplanted, that received that transplant, then became obese without any changes to anything else. So we can't exactly replicate that in humans because you can't find a human that is what we call notobiotic. That means there are no gut bacteria. Um, humans are colonized pretty much upon birth. And so you can't do a direct, you know, trans transplant from an obese person to a lean person and watch them then um, become obese. But that inspired um, a, a treatment method for really uh, virulent gastrointestinal infections, uh, overgrowth of like C. diff and H. pylori, where we actually can do fecal transplants to help treat those diseases. And it's actually very effective. Um, so not to say that those people, you know, we are then become lean or obese. They, they actually, you know, have to get, uh, get these transplants from a qualified donor. So we haven't gotten to that point yet, but we can, um, look at changes in bacterial diversity and specific strains of bacteria, and even, um, look at the genes that are associated with specific metabolic pathways, we can look at those before and after a dietary intervention or before and after weight loss and very clearly see changes in the human microbiome. We can also feed, uh, and, this, and that's been shown, and we have also seen um, high-fat diet uh, challenges. So you feed an individual a high fat diet and, and one thing, and I don't want to knock Jimmy Dean or anything, but one thing that we use to induce what we call a metabolic endotoxemia or, uh, increased levels of lipopolysaccharide. We feed people a couple Jimmy Dean's breakfast sandwiches for breakfast. and You'd see a market increase in circulating LPS. Um, but the problem, like I mentioned earlier, is that there's so much heterogeneity from one person to the next that, you know, you may be able to, to track these changes in a person over time, but it's very hard to look at sort of like an entire group and get a, a homogeneous sample from that group and then do an intervention and then see, you know, after the intervention, another um, homogeneous change. So what we usually have relied on when we look at sort of like whole diet trends is we have um, large scale epi epidemiologic studies. So one of the famous ones was looking at actually adolescents that were consuming, um, you know, a westernized diet versus uh, like children in the, in the United States would be an example. Um, versus those who were living in less developed countries and were subsisting on more of a plant-based, low-fat diet. And um, there are differences in profiles between those groups. So uh, a diet, and we, we could do the same thing when we look at athletes um, or, or physically active people versus sedentary people. Exercise 
independent of that, just looking at the diet, having a diet that's high in carbohydrates and high in fiber seems to support um, a more beneficial and more diverse microbiome versus the standard American diet or even a ketogenic diet. There, there haven't been a, many studies that have replicated that, but there have been some studies that have shown that a ketogenic style diet actually reduces gut bacterial diversity, and that's in humans. So um, I, I feel confident saying that there are enough human studies to support what we've seen in the earlier rodent literature. Yeah, uh, it's super interesting you just brought that up because I was going to, uh, and it's not so much a question as what I uh, really thought about when you were talking earlier was you mentioned the high fat diet is the one that you took leading to insulin resistance and that the Western diet is actually uh, high fat where I think most people, especially in the media nowadays and, and what you see um, uh, uh, the news and all that kind of stuff, people think that it's the opposite, that the mm. carbs are what's causing all these things. And uh, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, I think we, we get lost in the um, carbs versus fats and don't look at sort of, you know, what are the subsets of carbs? Like if we're more looking at a standard American diet, those carbohydrates are usually not the, you know, starchy vegetable carbs or the whole grains. They're the refined carbohydrates that come with a dose of usually saturated fats. So for the purpose of what we um, define as high fat, usually in the literature, a high fat diet is going to be more than 40% calories from fat. But the caveat to that is that in most cases, when when researchers use the term, you know, high fat diet, they're not necessarily mentioning what uh, the percentage is then of carbohydrates. So you may have a high fat and really the standard American diet is a high fat, high refined carb, high calorie diet as well. So even having, a, you know, even just caloric restriction alone can and I should say caloric restriction that leads to weight loss. Um, can affect the gut microbiome. And if we have a person who's going from obese to normal weight, that can have a positive influence on the microbiome. And it may be that that weight loss, those beneficial effects of weight loss supersede what might be the negative effects of, you know, if they do it with uh, a ketogenic diet. So it's very hard to say, you know, that one thing is a, is a causative factor because in most cases when we're looking at feeding studies, there are, there are so many things going on. And if we have high fat, that means that we have lower carbohydrate. If we have lower carbohydrate, we may have low fiber. And based on the literature thus far, I would say that it's probably not so much carbohydrates as it is the amount of fiber. Um, because fiber can be fermented by multiple strains of bacteria, um, you know, like uh, bifidobacterium is one that you usually will see in probiotics, um, you know, over-the-counter probiotics. So if you are feeding your gut microbiome, if you're feeding these bacteria with things that they want to eat or, or metabolize, um, then you're supporting their growth. Whereas if you are reducing those things in the diet, then those bacteria are not going to thrive. So more than just saying fats and carbohydrates, I would say fiber, fibrous carbohydrates, 
And, you know, not saying that we can't include fats in the diet, not to say that fats are harmful to the microbiome, but just making sure that we're, you know, sticking with the dietary guidelines of, of 30% calories or fewer from fats, which is still a, a, a reasonable amount. So I, I'm definitely not a proponent of saying like, you know, fats are bad. I'm not trying to really vilify any um, macronutrient, um, but it, it's just, you know, it's, it's so much more nuanced than saying like carbs are bad or fats are bad. <laughs> And along that same line, as we look deeper and past the macronutrient, can you speak to perhaps uh, general recommendations, if you feel confident in giving them, as for how much fiber one should be digesting uh, and perhaps where they can get their best fiber from or their most fiber from? Yes, absolutely. So our general recommendations for fiber, um, it varies based on age and gender. Um, I think the average intake of fiber right now is about 15 to 17 grams per day in the United States. We really want to aim for 25 to 38 grams per day. Um, now, if, if a person is having uh, a lot of GI issues, then fiber can, some, depending on the type of fiber, um, that can sometimes actually exacerbate it. So one thing that's been sort of popularized, well, you guys are probably familiar with a gluten-free diet that's really popular right now. Um, and when people eliminate um, things that contain gluten, Sometimes they do have an improvement in their symptoms, but it's not necessarily due to the removal of gluten. Um, it may actually be due to a reduction in dietary fiber because most of these gluten-free products are actually really low in fiber as well. Um, so it's sort of just one version of what we would call a low FODMAP or fermentable um, oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharide, and polyol diet. So that's what FODMAP stands for. And it's basically just saying we're reducing the amount of sugars that are easily fermentable by bacteria because one of the um, products of, of fermentation uh, is gas. And so if we are reducing the fiber content, we're then reducing gas formation and that can reduce bloating and abdominal pain and things like that. Um, so that's just one caveat is that sometimes people have, you know, maybe they're experiencing GI issues. It's especially common in endurance athletes. Um, increasing fiber content of the diet um, may not benefit them because it may be that, you know, they're already having issues with, with fiber in the diet. But that being said, most people are probably deficient um, and dietary fiber. So um, the, the USDA Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends, and, and eat, this sounds really basic, and a lot of people probably want it to be like way fancier than this, but it's really not. Um, but if you are eating, you know, a few square meals a day, you want to make sure that half your plate pretty much is produce. So mostly vegetables and some fruits, and then about a quarter grains, and you want to make half of your grains whole grains. And then you throw in a quarter of a plate of lean protein, one or two thumbs of a fat, and then some fat-free or low-fat dairy. Uh, most people are not getting sufficient amounts of produce. And just by doing that, they'll increase their fiber content. Um, now, there are certain types of fibers that are more or less fermentable. 
Um, so if you want to sort of reduce your, your chances of having um, gas as a byproduct of increasing your, your dietary fiber, because that usually happens. For most people who try to make a, an increase in their dietary fiber, they're going to experience some gas and bloating, and it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, but going for um, cellulose, so that's sort of like the structural uh, component of plants, so like the strings and celery and skins and things like that, that may um, cause a little bit less gas. So it's it sort of sounds, like I said, very basic, but like increasing your vegetable intake will probably do you a world of good. Um, but that being said, if the fiber is not as easily fermentable, then it's not going to necessarily increase bacteria that would that would want to ferment that fiber, those beneficial bacteria. So that's where the whole grains come in, because grains contain other types of fiber that are a little bit more fermentable. So things like oatmeal um, that, you know, when you add water, it becomes very gelatinous. That's a sign that there's some soluble fiber in there. So by increasing your intake, both of whole grains and of vegetables, you are going to be doing yourself some favors. And, and with that guideline, you briefly mentioned endurance athletes and, and reducing GI distress. Would that guideline apply to the athletes as well? Would they need more uh, because they're so active or is it just kind of for everyone? It's for everyone. I would say that the caveat for endurance athletes would be to be more careful about timing. You definitely would want it. The gastric emptying takes about anywhere from one to four hours and fiber actually slows gastric emptying. So if you're getting geared up for a long run, you're thinking that it's going to be probably, you know, more than 30 to 45 minutes based on the limited amount that I've read so far, um, then maybe limiting fiber in, you know, the several hours before your run, or if it's going to be an event, you know, like if you're looking at fueling for a performance um, and you're looking at like a, a marathon, ultra marathon, something like that, you may want to limit fiber actually for several days before the event. So as you're doing your carb loading, making sure that those are actually more refined carbohydrates that are lower in fiber. So instead of doing, you know, whole grain breads and things like that, go for polished white rice. Um, and that can help prevent the gastric upset. But part of the GI issues look like they actually are, are sort of more mechanical in nature. Um, and then also in terms of the type of carbohydrate that a person is ingesting during the event. So part of it is, you know, making sure that um, you don't have too much of a hypertonic solution. So you're, you want to make sure your carb concentration is about um, uh, six to eight percent. So like Gatorade and things like that, they're pre-made those sports beverages to give you the, the correct um, concentration of carbs. Um, but then also just the jostling. So that that consistent, um, you know, up and down bouncing and whatnot while you're running. And then also the fact that um, you actually are shunting blood away from the digestive system. And so that reduces oxygen availability. Um, so it creates what we call a hypoxic environment and also can change the pH of the gut. So I've seen um, in the limited studies thus far uh, that even as little as a half hour of really intense exercise up to, you know, we're looking at endurance events, a couple hours of, of intense exercise um, can cause gastric upset, increased intestinal permeability, and even increased um, circulating LPS even in this very healthy population. Um, and it seems that females in many cases seem to be more prone to gastric upset, 
Um, and I, I haven't seen much else in the way of, of probiotic supplementation might be beneficial, but it really comes down to, you know, proper timing of the carbohydrates and yeah, definitely limiting fiber intake. So, um, you know, sometimes I see people like really go to town on like the, they love the whole grain bread with peanut butter and banana. If you can tolerate that, it's totally fine, but it's not a recommendation that I would make right off the bat for an endurance athlete. So it sounds like in acknowledging through the literature that we do the gut biome well in these lower fat diets, mm -hmm. that as, and as we get more literature as, uh, as well, and, and I know that RP is much on, on board with uh, fueling performance with carbohydrates, mm -hmm. uh, there seems to be a balancing act between the amount of carbohydrates you need for performance or for aesthetics, knowing that you guys work with a ton of bodybuilders and, and, and your athletes as well. Yeah. But is the balance then between the carbohydrate needed, especially when for a bodybuilder, calories are, are so uh, uh, significant between getting the carbs needed to hit a certain calorie count and being mindful of the fiber that one could comfortably take in? Yes. And, you know, it's funny because we, um, you know, we, we are really big too on, on having people eat vegetables, you know, we're having them do you know, one to two handfuls or one to two cups of vegetables at each meal. And as people get, you know, later into the diet phase and their hunger is increased many times that their, their solution is, and this is a totally viable solution, but to increase the vegetable content. And the whole idea behind volumetrics is eating lots of vegetables because that stomach distension, just filling your stomach, and it could be with water, it could be with vegetables, but stomach distension alone signals satiety or feelings of fullness. Um, but that can really, the fiber can really add up and sometimes between the increased amount of fiber, um, intestinal bulk and the reduction in calories, which can actually lead to decreased gastric motility. That basically means that your GI tract will slow down a little bit in order to more effectively absorb nutrients from the diet. Those, those two will, will lead to some pretty serious constipation. Um, and so sometimes mm -hmm. people, and, and it's something I did a physique show, a bodybuilding show back in 2015 and, you know, was in contact with a lot of competitors. Um, but it's something that a lot of people experience that they may go, you know, days between having bowel movements and that can be really uncomfortable and it subsides once they get back to, you know, their normal maintenance, um, needs, but yeah, it's, you know, fiber is super important, but there is a reason why we have a range and not just, you know, eat all the fiber that you could possibly want. Um, you know, most in most cases, people are, like I said, they're going to be deficient. But when we look at, you know, the the individuals who are more likely to to work with um, a nutritionist or dietitian and the people who are really active they may not actually, even in their habitual diet, they may not be so prone to deficiencies because they probably are eating a more nutritious diet. Um, so yeah, when you're looking at, uh, you know, an, an ultra endurance athlete who might need to have 300 grams of carbohydrates per day, 
yeah, then you may be looking at how, you know, ways to um, decrease fiber intake and be very careful about the timing uh, because those gastric, I mean, gastric upset can really hamper performance. Um, and that's why, you know, we're very, we, when we give, you know, performance um, fueling recommendations and things like that, you know, we'll also say like how, how much water should you be having with your workout carbs to make sure that you're having the correct concentration. Very cool. So I'd like to transition into this next topic, uh, which I call, or not topic, but this next consideration, which maybe goes away from that, which is uh, physiological and perhaps taps into some of the psychological considerations if this, uh, in fact, has been supported at all by the literature. But just to begin with an anecdote, uh, I, I recall when I was in school, uh, that this coincided with a high uh, stress period around finals. I had mm. a normal training, uh, normal diet, and I went to a gastro and I was told that I had IBS and there's really, well, we don't know exactly what all is involved at the time. This was like 2010. Um, mm -hmm. And there really wasn't anything uh, specific that I was told that I could do uh, and that it was likely like in quotes, just stress. So there's mm. be at least popularly, and, and I think I've observed that in just other athletes and in speaking with other people, uh, but at least when I've heard the gut biome discussed, I've heard people say, um, and, and I don't know where perhaps they're getting this from, though I, I have heard similar things, that the gut is like the second brain and that mm. it is connected with your psychology quite closely. So uh, perhaps if you could speak to what the literature is actually suggested thus far uh, within, I can't imagine all the limitations of that, <laughs> that research. Uh, what, yeah. what no, to be, uh, I can't imagine it's uh, causation, but or perhaps just general correlations in, in, with the psychology and with what people report as being like IBS or anything. Mm -hmm. like um, it's interesting you asked that because I actually, I was kind of looking back over just to see if there are any, any new studies that had come out since I wrote this section of the ebook. Um, and I actually did come across a study and I have to dive in a little bit deeper, but they looked at um, intestinal permeability and bacterial diversity um, after four days of a military training exercise. And this was in the Arctic. And so they were under a lot of stress and they did a couple different dietary interventions. They had a control group and then they had a protein supplement group and a carbohydrate supplement group. And they found that regardless of diet, um, after the four-day training exercise, there was decreased uh, bacterial diversity and increased intestinal permeability. So certainly, even if your diet, and they, and they also were eating their normal um, you know, MREs, so they, they had normal rations and then were being supplemented. So um, it seemed that even with proper nutrition, just the psychological stress seemed to have an effect on... Um, the microbiome. And in um, endurance athletes who are exercising in the heat, that seems to, even though it's not quite psychological, but it does seem that there are other 
effects that or other other influences on the microbiome that will exacerbate intestinal permeability and loss of diversity even if the even if nutrition is sound um back in when i was in grad school i took an uh behavioral endocrinology course and at the time i actually had been um in treatment for disordered eating for some time and so I was really interested and I actually I had I was diagnosed with IBS as well. And so I became very interested in the role of the microbiome and feeding behaviors. So my first foray into that area was actually a, a presentation for that course. And I looked at the role of um, the microbiome and and the what what little we know about how how it communicates with what's called the endocannabinoid system. So most people are familiar with cannabinoids, <laughs> um, cannabis and, and marijuana, and the fact that, you know, marijuana can be an appetite stimulant. It's actually, you know, used to increase appetite. Uh, medical marijuana can be used for that in, in people who are undergoing chemo. And um, the, the endocannabinoid system, and this is you know, I have to go back and look at it. So this is just what I'm remembering from that time. But we have endocannabinoid receptors that are pretty ubiquitous. So they're located um, I, in, in adipose tissue, um, in the brain. There are different types of receptors. And we have, um, we actually produce compounds that will bind to them. We don't have to smoke marijuana in order to get that effect. And so there is some evidence that the gut microbiome has some sort of crosstalk with this endocannabinoid system, and that can actually influence feeding behaviors. And those feeding behaviors have been associated with things like binge eating disorder and anorexia nervosa. So there is definitely a role between human psychology and the gut, even in terms of just sort of our, our primitive reward pathways. So we could be looking at a relationship there that, you know, perhaps your gut microbiome predisposes you to something on the spectrum of disordered eating. And so maybe you have a, you know, a really high food reward. So some, some individuals experience high food reward. That's basically that they have a, a huge reward response to something that tastes good. And so it's much harder for them to stop eating when they feel full. And so that's why some people are more prone. We call that hedonic eating, just eating because it tastes good and you enjoy it, even though you may not be um, hungry. Um, that sounds like, uh, that sounds like us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a lot of people. I mean, um, and it's normal, you know, sometimes a year to, to eat past the point of feeling full. Um, and, but then there are some people, you know, I've come across people who really don't feel any kind of way about food. Like they can just eat a meal and mm, that was okay. And they don't feel driven to overeat even things that are highly palatable. Um, and I don't know if you've uh, heard of, um, uh, Guillenet, I think his, his name is pronounced Guillenet, uh, but he wrote the hungry brain, um, and, and in that book, he delves into the response, uh, like the gut response to different um, formulations of 
foods? Like, do does our gut respond to just calories, or does our gut respond specifically to carbohydrates or to fats? Like, what is it about? Because, like I said, with mice, if you feed a mouse a high fat diet, it will eat way more than a mouse fed a chow diet or a low fat diet. So, what is it about fats that you know make us want to eat more? And and we do seem to be programmed to overeat foods that are high in refined carbohydrates and fats and salt specifically. Um, so there's certainly, and, and we call our, our sort of our um, digestive tract has what we call the enteric nervous system. So there's actually, there's a nervous system that's sort of independent of our central or peripheral nervous systems. Um, and so it's sort of like kind of running itself and, you know, it communicates with the brain and whatnot, but things like, um, peristalsis, the wave-like contractions of the gut, we don't really have any say in that. That's that's regulated by little neurons within the enteric nervous system. So the intestine can really run itself. Um, so it's really interesting to look at this as sort of, you know, different factions or, or sort of different countries, but they're all in, in communication with each other. Um, but absolutely, there is a, a link between the microbiome and human psychology, it's just that it's, like you said, it's incredibly hard to elucidate what's actually going on there. Um, you know, like we, a lot of people are saying, oh, now we have, you know, increased um, prevalence of autism and things like that. Well, we also have different diagnostic criteria now. And so it's not necessarily that um, the prevalence of these psychiatric disorders has increased so much as we now are, have more sensitive diagnostic tools for it. Um, but that being said, there have been some studies on probiotic supplementation um, and some of these disorders. And um, I know lactobacillus is one specifically that's been shown to reduce markers of anxiety um, and stress. Now, a lot of these are done in animal models. And so you have to extrapolate like is, you know, a, 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 a mouse that, you know, stops trying to swim out of a tank of water, is that a sign of depression? Like, is this mouse given up on life or is it just tired? You know, so some of these these tests that we use to determine whether a mouse is or a rat is depressed or has anxiety, you have to be very careful extrapolating that to human depression because we, we have a lot more going on in our human brains than a mouse has going on in its mouse brain. No disrespect to the mice. Yeah. So is that a way, and if I'm understanding correctly, the enteric nervous system is a part of the autonomic nervous system, that which is not part of our conscious uh, everyday control, but it's specific to the digestive system? Um, you could say that there, there's overlap. Yeah. And yeah. Mm -hmm. anyway, so, um, it, I guess what I was trying to get at is that it, in these cases of finding out if these mice are being psychological, this would be a mice that perhaps is being fed a certain diet and then you're looking at the behavior of the mice to probably perhaps tease out some kind of correlation between uh, the psychological behavior and the dietary uh, um, uh, implementation or the, the dietary uh, protocol? Yes. So you're basically, when we look at... Um, Yeah, we're, we're trying to basically say that specific uh, specific behaviors of the rodents 
we relate to symptoms of anxiety or depression. And so we can say this mouse is exhibiting symptoms of depression. And then we can feed them, you know, a probiotic or change their diet and then test them again and say, are they still exhibiting these symptoms of depression? And then some people will extrapolate that then to say like, oh, this probiotic treats anxiety or depression. Um, but because, you know, we're trying to say, because the, the enteric nervous system, this branch of the autonomic nervous system that is not controlled by conscious thought whatsoever, it's very hard to then say, oh, that, we figured out the mechanism for, by which that has communicates with our central nervous system and with our um, it, higher order functions, but it's really hard to do that in a mouse because mice don't have like really developed frontal lobes with, you know, uh, the ability to, to reason and, and, and think about themselves. I mean, when we think about, you know, depression um, in a, in a human, there's so many factors that go into that, you know, like what their, their childhood and, um, their coping mechanisms and things like that. So I think it's just, we have to be very cautious saying that, you know, a rat, a rat's behavior in a swim test can be extrapolated to a person who has depression because they went through some sort of abuse when they were younger. You know, it's, mm -hmm. yeah. It sounds um, that there is certainly a, a connection between uh, what is going on in our gut and what we experience psychologically. Yeah. Uh, to, to say at this point that that is yeah, irrefutable, uh, it, or if that's too strong a word, I, I can definitely re retract that. But my, my question is in terms of professional care, mm -hmm. uh, what is the communication like, if any, between professionals such as yourself and uh, professionals, uh, whether it's uh, medical doctors and psychiatrists or psychologists, because we are very strongly considering uh, uh, mental health nowadays. Yeah. Where are we at uh, based on the literature and the communication between these two fields? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I really think that it's lacking. I think, you know, part of it is that the, the media and I don't, you know, they have, they have to get readers and things like that and they have to make things sound really sexy. Um, but media communication to the public really does a poor job of representing actual literature. And it's not so much that, you know, between um, people who are doing research and then practitioners, I think that there's actually, you know, a, a fairly good sense of communication and carryover there because medical practitioners, you know, they have to maintain CEUs and they have to uh, remain abreast of, of the current literature. So it's sort of the, the academics were we're creating knowledge and then disseminating it. And then the medical uh, professionals are reading that. And I think the biggest issue is not so much our communication, but the ability to then communicate with, with clients and with patients, because the patients are sort of getting 
they're they're being um, fed a, a different set of information than what the practitioners or the researchers are, you know, producing and trying to disseminate. Um, so I think that's where what probably we would want to focus on if there was some place that we would want to, you know, stage an intervention, it would be how do we increase public scientific literacy and then improve our ability to communicate our findings and keep things current because, you know, it's, it's so hard and, and even nutritional science is very new. Um, I mean, some of the, you know, the early, like Ansel Keys, he did um, the, um, uh, oh shoot, the Minnesota starvation experiments back in, I think yeah. it was the 1940s. Um, and so that's when we first started looking at like the effects of, of long-term starvation and caloric restriction and um, nutrient deficiencies and things like that. And that was not very long ago. I actually, I have a book from, I think, 1915. They hadn't identified insulin yet. So, I mean, it's really just in the past hundred years, we're trying to navigate this landscape. And then, you know, we have so many different researchers and some of them have agendas and they design experiments in such a way that they come up with the results that they want to see. And then the media is reporting things in, in very biased ways at times. So, you know, it, it's no wonder that people get confused about this and that there's sort of a mistrust toward the medical community. I mean, you saw that with vaccines and that's still definitely an issue and people don't know what to believe about saturated fats. Um, you know, we just changed the recommendations for dietary cholesterol so research is just moving so quickly and it takes a while for, for um, government recommendations and things like that to change. So it's sort of just that, you know, we're putting out too much information too quickly and maybe not checking ourselves very well. You know, when we get uh, one new cool study that sort of takes off and then, um, you know, 10 years later, it's like, oh, oops, that, you know, we were a little bit ahead of ourselves there. Yeah, I think uh, something very unfortunate uh, when, when these like kind of hot fitness topics come up, like in early 2010, it was like gluten, and now I feel like I'm hearing more and more about the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. uh, is that people then attribute that's the reason they are not succeeding or in whatever they're doing? Oh, yeah. Wait for the next thing to come out, and then it's like, okay, this is the reason I'm not doing this, and that just that cycle gets really, uh, uh, really unfortunate. Oh, yeah. I mean, I get a lot of people who ask, you know, oh, well, how, I, you know, I'm not losing weight. Like, how can I change my microbiome so that I can lose weight? And, you know, and, and even the studies that I did, we were looking at the protective effects of uh, probiotic supplementation uh, against a high fat diet, the high fat hypercaloric diet. You know, can you take probiotics and not become obese, you know, eating whatever you want? And the answer is no. Um, <laughs> our mice, um, our, our mice didn't become as obese as we kind of wanted them to or expected them to, but you know, that was probably because I was gavage feeding them every day. So I was tube feeding them and it was very stressful for them. Um, but when you feed a person, a high fat hypercaloric diet, they still will, will gain fat. We've seen that there's, there might be some protection against, um, the high fat diet induced insulin resistance. So that's a good thing. You know, you, maybe if you're taking probiotics along with your standard American diet, 
you won't become as insulin resistant. But again, that's just, you know, these are short-term feeding studies. It's not following someone through their entire life and looking at the risk of um, cardiovascular disease and things like that. So yeah, I, I think people really want to find something fancy and, and these, the fad diets I think are really appealing because it's like, oh, wow, there seems like there's so much science behind it, like intermittent fasting and autophagy and the keto diet and increasing fatty acid oxidation and taking MCT oil, you know, medium chain triglyceride oil. Um, and it sounds, because it sounds complex, it sounds like it should work. And when I say eat a little bit less and move a little bit more and eat whole grains and vegetables, it's like, that's too simple. There's no way that's going to work. Yeah. And then uh, it becomes all about adherence after that, because that is hardly simple. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we, I think we alluded to it, but, um, and, and I've heard Mike uh, talk excitedly about the release of the new book. So yes. this will be Diet 2.0, if, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if that's the mm -hmm. exact title. Uh, I know that it is much longer. It includes uh, new topics such as um, periodization of uh, diet, perhaps around uh, a sport or a competitive season. It talks about um, maybe taking a diet into your own hands. This is just what I recall from him reading the chapter list. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was also something more about like uh, diet psychology. Um, but if you were to uh, leave the audience with, and, and uh, maybe you can even make a plug for the book, uh, leave, leave the audience with something that uh, would just be like a good general takeaway uh, to help uh, and uh, certainly be respectful of your time. Uh, bring it all together in, in a, a, no pun intended, di digestible uh, uh, fashion, uh, even though we understand that it is not this one size fits all as this topic does seem to lack uh, homogeneity. Yes, absolutely. Um, I would say my number one uh, recommendation is to eat what I call a plant-based diet, not plant exclusive, but eat plants with every meal because um, that will help increase your fiber intake. Uh, when it comes to exercise, we see that extreme endurance or even um, non-voluntary exercise actually may cause more GI stress and upset. So it's important to properly periodize your exercise, that more is not always better. Sometimes more is just more. Um, and aside from that, you know, you eat a balanced diet with a moderate amount of fat and protein and plenty of uh, fiber from your vegetables and whole grains. It's there's there's no um, evidence to show that you need to take a probiotic. They can be beneficial um, in some cases, especially if you've taken a, a series of antibiotics, which you should always take to your doctor's recommendations. Um, and I cover that and and quite a bit more in the um, gut health section of the RP 2.0 diet book and give some um, takeaways on that, some sort of practical applications. And actually next year, I'll be writing a whole body um, gut microbiome book. So I'll actually be delving into pretty much every system in the body 
and scouring the research to determine the effect of the microbiome on the on the entirety of human physiology to the best of my ability, and then giving um, dietary and exercise recommendations for that as well. So um, this next book exper- expected out at the end of this year, and then my book will be coming out at the end of 2019. That's that's awesome. Uh, I, I recall reading uh, the first RP book and and uh, just seeing how the general recommendations have evolved with the literature to create this uh, very well-rounded, I think, very thorough uh, guideline uh, that mm-hmm. worked for us and worked for many of our clients. It, it's going to be really exciting to read the new version. And I think the last question I have before we let you go uh, is mm-hmm. with a topic that you've spent so much time on, you, you this, if I'm, if it's uh, not wrong to say, this, you've made your career around this very topic. Uh, if, yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you start taking on projects like writing a book and working with clients, understanding that it is uh, a topic that is in such. Uh, it's it, it's in its infancy stages. So how, how do you approach perhaps uh, excitement around uh, research or skepticism and be able to communicate this information confidently to a larger audience as, as you've done so far? Um, I think, you know, when you, when you think you know everything, you really stop learning. So I... And, and even, you know, now, even after you said I'm, I've sort of made a career out of this, I feel like the career has made itself around me that sort of people came to me and said, you know so much about this. And, and the more that I know, the more that I realize I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's important to, you know, realize the, the limits of what research we have um, and the limits of my ability to, you know, read all of it. I'd love to, but I don't know, you know, that I'm sure there's something that I'm missing. Um, and I, I'm always excited about learning anything new. And so, um, you know, in terms of being able to communicate with people and, um, not get, I guess, stuck in an idea, I just, I I guess I am sort of naturally, skeptical about most things. Um, you know, I, I want to represent the evidence to the best of my ability um, and realize that I may be wrong or I may be right just for now and I'll be wrong eventually. Um, and just to look at the information as an opportunity to have a better understanding of the human body, but not to necessarily prove a point um, or to, to prove myself right. You know, I I just want to represent the information and I want to help people become healthier and perform better. I don't necessarily, you know, I don't have any supplements or anything that I'm selling. And so I don't have, um, you know, I guess any, uh, (laughs) I'm not being unscrupulous about it. So if someone disagrees with me, you know, I just invite them to, Hey, show me more literature. If you can, show me more literature and I am incorrect about something, I actually would prefer that, you know, it's, it's better to um, know what you don't know. What I just, I had a fortune cookie. Half of being smart is knowing what you're dumb about. So that's sort of my approach to it. I know that it's very new and that we're going to be 
continuously making, um, uh, you know, discoveries, and I invite that. And, and I think one of the reasons I ask that is because I, I, I would expect and certainly appreciate and honor uh, a response that, that, that is that honest and um, uh, willing to adapt and learn as all researchers are, are taught to do. And I think sometimes that we're so bogged down by the marketing plots and uh, sexy cells and supplements that sometimes when you just hear someone present that the literature is really where we're being guided. It's not just our own stake in a particular area. I think it mm -hmm. can help educate people as for where to go because where not to go seems to just be kind of flashing in your face with uh, bright lights. So uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time, Gabrielle, to come on today. Uh, I know we learned a lot and, and certainly our audience will have as well. Kyle, do you have any uh, thoughts? I just want to say thank you. That was, that was really awesome. Oh, thank you guys. That was great. That was, that was super fun. And you asked some really awesome questions, especially the last one that that's, you know, Bill Nye said what, you know, what would change his mind about creationism? And he said evidence. And so that's really what I would encourage people to do, you know, look for good evidence, good actual uh, research done by professionals in the field. Be very careful about anyone who wants to sell you anything. <laughs> and are, uh, can people find you? Are you are you most active on Instagram? Uh, I know they can certainly find you through Renaissance Periodization, uh, but is there anywhere we can link you to uh, so that people become aware of who you are? Yeah, um, I do post pretty regularly on Instagram. Um, my handle there is Vitamin PhD. And then I also have a Facebook page with the same name, Vitamin PhD. Uh, and so I post pretty com pretty commonly on those two um, uh, platforms. I have a blog. It's uh, vitaminphdnutrition.com. There is uh, the, they, people can contact me there as well. It'll go straight to my email. Um, I also have links up for coaching through Renaissance Periodization. And um, that blog is, is sort of a mix of um, behavioral modification approaches because actually I just sat and passed my um, ACE certified health coach exam. So that's an angle that I've included into my coaching. Um, and then just sort of recipes and, and my rambling thoughts and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I encourage people to get in touch with me on any platform. I'm pretty active and, you know, try to answer questions even if they – get, you know, slide up in my DMs. Awesome. And uh, I think the handle of vitamin PhD is one that uh, no one will, will forget that. That's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for your time. And we hope you have a, a great rest of your day. Thank you too.